Hey, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond. This is the show where we make it easier for you to get out of your comfort zones. Today, I am chatting with Olympic gold medalist in board sailing or windsurfing, Bruce Kendall. Bruce was originally put onto Bruce by Clive Neeson, who appeared back, I think, in episode number 72. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and have a listen. It is a cracker. Today with Bruce, I talk about chasing a passion and what you go through as you follow something that you're that you're passionate about, something that you're excited by. We obviously talk about the Olympics and what goes on there. We talk a lot about mindset. We talk about winning and losing and how Bruce looks at that, but also how a lot of other people that have achieved great things look at that as well. We talk about mental health we talk about changes of direction, and we talk about skateboarding down to the Olympic Village to go training. This was an awesome chat with Bruce. I really enjoyed it, and he is into some pretty interesting stuff at the moment as well, which is is cool and and well worth checking out. Before we jump into the episode today, uh, just a heads up for those of you in Wellington, I am running a surmount workshop this is designed to help people strategically pick a challenge and then work through that challenge, plan it out, identify all the barriers, address those barriers and set a plan of action in place to to implement with support and teaching you all the strategies that you need to overcome the discomfort around taking on a big challenge That's going to be in Wellington on the 26th of January. If you want to come along, there are early bird tickets on sale at the moment. You can jump over to surmountcourse.com, S-U-R-M-O-U-N-T, course.com, and you can grab your tickets now. Still time to get some for a Christmas present, if you know anyone that would benefit from coming along. I had a great time last time we ran this, this workshop, and looking forward to having another great time but thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with bruce and i today bruce kendall welcome to the uncomfortable is okay podcast thanks for sharing some time with me today my pleasure bruce you'll probably be a very familiar name to a lot of kiwis of a certain generation and i know that my dad and all of my uncles will probably be quite jealous that I'm having this conversation with you here today. <laughs> um, but can you give the rest of the listeners that aren't from New Zealand and maybe aren't familiar with you a little bit of background about yourself? Like where where were you born? Where did you grow up? And was there anything kind of in your youth that really got you into board sailing? I was born into a sailing family. My parents are very keen on sailing and, and so... Literally, the, the weekend we were on a boat, and the weekend after mum gave birth to me, they were away on the boat. And so I was, I was brought up sailing, and um, I, I went through the traditional P class thing and what have you, and then uh, and 470s a little bit. And then when I saw windsurfing, I thought, that's me. I want to do that. There's no shackles, there's no side stays. I can uh, carry it down to the beach under my arm on roller skates down Lands Road, uh, Little Bucklands Beach. Um, and it was fast and versatile, and it was just fantastic. So I went hard out into windsurfing, and I pretty much walked away from traditional sailing because it just wasn't as much fun. And uh, also, it was a lot cheaper than traditional sailing. 
and then um, it became uh, around that time I'd, I'd sailed from Auckland down to Tauranga and back following my parents' uh, yacht because essentially I, I got seasick in yachts and also pretty bored on the yacht whereas the windsurfer was fun and I could zip out to that island or that rock and then zip back to the boat as they were sailing down the coast. And it was a wonderful experience. It also gave me the, the strength to and um, training to be able to beat the other New Zealand sailors when we had our first pre-Olympic regatta trials. And uh, that gave me funding to to an effort to go to the pre-Olympic regatta. I had a girlfriend and things were going along normally and, and um, going through school. And, and I was a bit nervous about going overseas, but it really opened my mind. And um, and I, I saw the potential and, and uh, saw a different outlook on life because the Americans being super poppy, uh, uh, super positive as opposed to a lot of the New Zealand cult that stage was very tall poppy syndrome. And so I, I went off windsurfing. And I, I never once really thought, um, oh, this is too hard, I can't do it. Um, yes, it was a bit frightening going overseas by myself. Um, well, actually with um, a couple of other New Zealanders, Grant Beck and Steve Macris. And I was lucky I was sort of taken under their wing a little bit. I didn't have to worry about the hard things like figuring out how I was going to get from one regatta to the next. Pretty much hitchhiked from each regatta to each regatta and, and um, borrowed equipment or chartered equipment at the events and didn't uh, have any equipment. And we basically did six months around America where we um, pretty much slept in the rough. Sometimes we had um, people's people there that would put us up or we'd find a, um, a kitchen that we could stay at at a youth hostel or... Um, Whatever. So it was a it was a very interesting and really good fun time, and I guess that that absolute commitment to work together with Grant Beck and, and um, Steve Macris and, and say look we're openly openly going to share all our information because we recognise it's us against the world. It wasn't us against each other, us against the world. Even though we knew that in the end it was going to come down to competition of who was going to be the best for the Olympic Games. Uh, up until that point, we just focused on working together, and, and, and we did that really well. I mean, that sounds like a, a super interesting experience to, to go through. I want to just jump back a little bit, and, and you mentioned you had some had some fears before you headed away overseas, and, and it wasn't around the windsurfing per se, but more the fact that your life was going to change. What were your big fears then that you remember? I, I, th- I think the, the whole thing of, well, the not knowing how I was going to be able to afford it, not knowing if I was going to be successful, not following the same path as all my peers. All my peers were either leaving school and getting a job or they were leaving school and going to university. And um, my teachers at school and my peers looked at me and, and, and said, you know, what are you doing windsurfing for? And, and you can't earn money from that. And that's not, a, that's not a life. How are you going to make that work? And I had no idea. I just knew that I liked windsurfing, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow this path and see where I go. And, and my girlfriend at the time says, no, you, you have to go and do that. I mean, look at the opportunity. It's a pretty unique opportunity. And I, I think that's something that I've really held on to all the way through is when an opportunity comes up, really study it and think, well, can I do that? It, will, it, will it be fun? And most of the time, say yes and, and have a go and see where it takes you. Um, I, I think that's that's been key for me. And I think if you give it your your best, it's surprising what can what can happen. Definitely, and I, th- I think like one of the the things from your story as well was just the the amazing amount of commitment that you that you had to it, and that you had to kind of go and explore this opportunity with with hitchhiking between events and, and sleeping rough and things. And 
like there's a certain amount of discomfort involved with that as well as around the uncertainty and around kind of what people perceive as safe and often people aren't aren't happy to to push out into that and I think I mean it's probably a slightly different story these days that there, there may not be quite as much of that that going on but whenever you're kind of venturing out and trying something new there's you have to go through through that that hard stuff and you have to kind of if you want to make something work I think everyone has kind of a version of that that sleeping rough and hitchhiking whether it's you're kind of starting a business or whether you're writing a book or or doing something like that and it, it may not be that you're actually hitchhiking and sleeping rough but there's parallels between what you the commitment you put in there and what other people need to do to to make something exciting work too yeah I, I think what I've, I've kind of observed looking at all the other Olympic sailors is usually that the person that wins or is the most successful is the person that wants that thing the most and they're prepared to sacrifice more than the other people to get that thing and they probably have a different level of discomfort and a different level of fear so it's important I think to recognize that adventure is a word closely connected with the unknown and discomfort. And, you know, many people have got this fascination with the idea of adventure. But the reality of adventure is usually the unknown and discomfort and the need to be able to sort of plan and and think on your feet when plan A goes wrong, what's plan B? And and the other thing I've, I've noticed that if you've got an idea in your mind of what you're trying to pursue, how intriguing it is for me that frequently, and it seems to be very consistent, that seemingly random chance happenings help will often help you in that direction. And it all sounds a bit sort of airy-fairy and, and, and non-science, but the amount of chance thing, chance events that have happened in my life that have helped me when I've been going in a particular direction or been stuck in a bit of bother and, and helped things go the right way is absolutely astounding. And unless you're prepared to have a go and charge off into the unknown and, and with, with a, a, an idea of what you're trying to do, you're probably not going to come across those things. Yeah, I was having a conversation with someone earlier today along the same lines about the kind of the random chances that, that pop up as, as opportunities when you're pursuing something. And I mean, really, there, there are opportunities all around us. But often yes. we're not aware of those because we haven't actually kind of said, hey, this is, this is what it is that I'm going after. So we don't, we don't recognize them as opportunities. They're just things that happen. But once you, once you kind of understand your direction and you start moving in it, those things are always there. Actually, you become more aware of them and say, oh, that looks, that looks cool. That would help me out. I can jump in and, and do this. Yes. I, I think the first thing is have an idea of what you want. And it's a good idea to write it down. The next thing is to move in that direction with your eyes open, with, with everything that you can, and really be looking for the opportunities. I think the other thing that's important that as well is if you're pursuing that thing, also you've got to bear in mind, is that a good thing? Because if you, if you hold an idea in your mind, whether it's good or bad, it's surprising how often you'll attract that thing to you. So it's very important that you think positive thoughts. Like, for instance, I used to think, oh, look, I, I should do my windsurfing now just in case I get a broken neck or a broken back and end up in a wheelchair. So that's why I'm going to do my windsurfing now. I can go to university after and I can get a job after. And what sort of has spun me out a little bit is I have since broken my neck and I have since 
pretty much fractured my back. And both times I've I've been very lucky that I've didn't end up in a wheelchair and didn't end up sort of passed away. <laughs> so it's very important to be very clear in your mind what you want, and those things will come to you. Mm, yeah. Bruce, I mean, I'd be remiss, I think, if I and get in trouble with my uncles as well if I didn't talk to you a little bit about <laughs> the Olympics and oh, uh, right. and your experience there as well, mate. So your first Olympics was eighty four. Yes, Los Angeles. Yeah, can you? I mean, maybe elaborate on on the experience that you had there and, and kind of what that was what that was like for you. It's kind of interesting through necessity, really. My planned build up was the best plan. And it's because I didn't have any money. Because I didn't really, a really solid plan of what I wanted to do, I did the simple plan. And the simple plan was basically to leave New Zealand, go to Los Angeles, stay in Los Angeles where the Olympic Games are going to be, and just train every day. Just train as many hours as I could and just get the hours down and learn the venue. When I say learn the venue, for sailing, it's really important to know what's going on with the current and the waves and the wind so that you know that as the season changes what are going to be the changes with the wind during that day so it feels like home and you know I, I followed that principle um, ever since and it's it's put me and people I'm coaching in quite good stead so Los Angeles was interesting I went there with no money I was lucky that the local windsurfing shop I've been friendly with them and that's the other thing I think that it's really a good idea to be be friendly with people and helpful and it's surprising what comes back. So there was the local windsurfing shop and we did a, I did a few things to help out the local windsurfing shop and got friends with them. And, and when I arrived in Los Angeles for the Olympic Games, they gave me a board to use. I couldn't afford to buy one and they gave me a board to use and I just used that board every day. And the Germans showed up and they smashed me every day. They were much faster than me. And it was pretty disheartening. But And then, of course, we were sailing without a harness. So imagine trying to do a pull-up or hanging onto a bar for five hours a day. And that's pretty much what we were trying to do with, our windsur- with uh, windsurfing at the Olympics back then because we had no harness. So we are literally just hanging on the boom. So the plan was to be able to do, do the whole race and feel really fit and strong at the end of the race. And, and so I'd do double the amount of hours that a race was. So a race could be... Um, an hour and a half long, maximum length for the race. And so I planned that I had to be on the water minimum for three hours a day. So I just doubled it. It was pretty simple, really. And sailing by yourself like that for a long time was really tough, actually. It was a really weird thing. I I ended up losing my ability to be able to talk properly. I, I started stuttering. I couldn't get my words out. My vocabulary went right down. And it was a pretty frightening thing, actually, what was happening. And it was just simply because I was spending so much time by myself on the water training every day that I guess your your brain ends up gravitating towards building on what you need to do, not what is normal thing. So, you know, basically I became really good at windsurfing and, and racing. And so the interesting thing is when um, the rest of the, the world turned up for the Olympic Games and right before the Olympic Games – went out in the water and they, everybody was smashing me. And, and some of these people I knew, I was faster than them. And I was like, what the hell's going on? I was quite a worry. And then um, I thought, well, maybe I need to 
try the the charter the actual olympic charter equipment so i try tried the brand new equipment and hang on i was really fast and the thing is the board i've been training on was like two or three kilos heavy <laughs> heavier than everybody else's and suddenly i was on the same equipment as everybody else and smashing them and it was a very exciting moment but um i have to say it was tough too because i because i didn't have the experience of traveling overseas and to europe and doing all the competitions i didn't know my competition that well and I ended up in a collision with a French guy. And even though I was on the ro- in the right, technically I had to prove I was in the right. And, and I wasn't able to get a witness because we were too far away from everybody. And I got disqualified. And, and I was pretty gutted about that. So, And then in the last race, I, I hadn't calculated the points properly. And I was actually in silver medal position coming around the last mark. And then I sort of fell off and was a bit casual about getting going again and lost a couple of places. And, and that cost me the um, silver medal. And so I was really gutted about that. And so if I hadn't got those two things wrong, arguably I could have won the gold medal. So I was, I was really, really angry about that. And But fortunately, the um, that result gave me the chance to be able to be sponsored because leading up to then I'd been um, working for pretty much six months of the year working windsurfing factories I worked for Stanley Tools for a little while putting uh, screwdriver blades and handles and bo- putting things in boxes and I worked at um, Fryran um, aluminium boats and heaters uh, doing sheet metal laboring so I did a whole range of, of work to, to fund my windsurfing and so after my bronze medal it gave me the the opportunity to get funded by the the windsurfing industry in New Zealand and Australia and and in Europe and um, so I was able to do to quite a high level all the areas of windsurfing sport that I really wanted to do which was mostly wave sailing and open class professional racing and and I I went around the world um, doing lots of prize money racing and that was a lot of fun. I I had a great time leading up to the 88 Olympics and uh, then in the 88 Olympic Games in Korea I um. I, I won. I guess all the extra training that I'd been doing and my knowledge about all my competitors and all the rest of it gave me a really good platform to be very, very competitive. And uh, so I didn't, I didn't actually have to sail the last race of the Olympic Games because I had such a, a big lead on points, which was a, a nice thing to have ha- have happen. So I could do. I did the last race in the Olympic Games just for fun, really. <laughs> That's an awesome line, Bruce. I mean, did you notice a mindset shift as well from '84 to '88 in terms of how you thought about racing, but also how you thought about yourself? I, I guess one thing that that interesting is I'm I'm actually a, quite a shy person. I don't like being in front of people. I don't like going on stage and collecting prizes. I don't. I've always felt really uncomfortable with public speaking and that sort of thing. But because of my successes, you, you end up getting thrown on stages and having to say things and and end up having to do public speaking engagements. And it's it's been a really good way to to grow, I guess, and develop new skills. And I'd have to say, from the difference between eighty four and eighty eight, well, I think a lot of the time I. I was actually operating on on a fear basis, fear of failure. And interestingly enough, um, just recently, um, well, a few years ago now, I had to do a public speaking engagement on the psychology of winning. And and what I've discovered is I actually didn't know what was the psychology of winning. You know, what? Why do people win? And my wife said, "Oh, look, look, you're in this book about famous sports men and women, and everybody made made different quotes." So, you know, Sidman Hillary was there and All Blacks and Barbara was in there and Russell Coots, etc. Well, I'll read through those that book and each person had, had a paragraph and I'll see if I can find some commonalities. And what I discovered was that 
most winners win because they hate to lose more than everybody else. So it's a, almost a fear base. You know, we, we, you don't, you really, really don't like the sensation of losing. It's a very uncomfortable thing. And so in the end, you'll go to quite extremes to make sure you don't lose. And I, I think it's that drive not to fail is the one that has um, been good for me. And I still use that, I guess. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating thing, especially when you compare it to to talking about positive mindset as well, and, and being aware of kind of why it is that you're that you're doing things. That it is, I mean, the the drive not to fail. You could almost, even though it creates a positive outcome, you could almost view that as kind of a, a negative reason for that positive outcome. Yes, fully, and and it's quite surprising. It's not something that I expected, and I I sort of kept quiet about it. And it was until I read that book that I recognized that it was it was actually a thing. <laughs> mm, it's fascinating. And Bruce, I mean, I want to talk a little bit as, as well about about the 92 Olympics because you went back. It was Barcelona 92, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've just talked about hating to lose. And I mean, that Olympic, you didn't make the podium. Like what was going through your head in the lead up to that, those Olympics? And then also kind of how did you feel after the Olympics were over? I think even with the first the first two Olympic Games in 84 and 88, I, I fully recognise, even though you've trained super hard and you've got the skill set, there still requires an element of luck that something doesn't go wrong. And so I was, I was always very aware of that. So, for instance, leading up to the 84 Olympic Games, right before the Olympic Games, I was doing aerobics as part of my training and I've damaged my Achilles and, and I wasn't able to sail right before the Olympic Games. And I thought it's over, you know. The interesting thing is Russell Coots had the same thing. We were rooming together and he had he had um, boils on his backside and, and he couldn't sail either. So we ended up hang, hanging out for with each other for like a week or so before the Olympic Games and we should have been training. And we were both successful. And then right before the Olympic Games in, um, in Korea, I was very aware of the fact of trying to make sure that I had my every every cell in my body fully charged up to be able to do a good result in the race and so it had started in the morning and I'd you know start up with you know hardcore music to get myself revved up and then I'd I'd race the bus down to the regatta site and in the beginning I'd go on my skateboard and then I went on a bicycle because I, I crashed on the on on my skateboard and took all the skin off the palm of my hand and so the the team manager banned me from the skateboard after that <laughs> and put me on a bike. And then right before I got sick, and here I was at the Olympic Games, right before the Olympic Games in Korea with a really bad flu. I think I'd even been on it. I was on antibiotics and I couldn't sail and also had um, my shoulders and my elbows were injured. I can't really remember from overtraining. And I was thinking, here I am at the Olympic Games and it's all going pear-shaped. And that was that's really tough. But in the end, I came through with the goods and won. So... You know, in a sense, you've still got to be lucky that everything goes well. And then I was very aware of that as well, leading up to the Olympic Games in Barcelona, pretty much the same blueprint. We went to Barcelona early. We trained really hard together. I took Aaron McIntosh as a training partner. I took Barbara with me. We worked together, um, the three of us, as, as, a, as a training squad and helped Barbara get up to speed. I mean, right before the Olympic Games in 92, Barbara had an accident on a boat and got her wrist slashed with a propeller and broke some bones in her hand. So they ended up delaying the Olympic trials so that she could go in the Olympic trials. And she won the Olympic trials, and and I put together her training program leading up to the uh, Olympic Games in Barcelona and also helped 
Aaron and I work together to help teach Barbara how to go fast and, and know where where to be in the course area. And, you know, she was successful. And unfortunately, in one of the races, my, my fin broke and uh, it was supplied equipment. And I couldn't finish that race. And at that time, if I had finished that race, I was in seventh when the fin broke. So if I had finished seventh, that would have been good. I was closer to first than I was to um, eighth in that race. And the way I'd been going that race, I, it was a good chance I could have won that race. But it wasn't to be. I couldn't finish. And because I couldn't finish in that race, that cost me the silver medal. If I had done well in that race, I could have been a gold medal. So it was kind of unlucky. And I've got to say, it's a really, really, really tough thing to lose because of somebody else's mistake. I it was for the first time and the last time in the Olympic Games that there was no redress for equipment failure. So because my fin broke, there was no compensation. It was like, sorry, you got last. And of course, in a normal Olympic race, you're allowed one discard. And so that was my discard. So I had another bad race, and, and that pretty much put me out of, the, out of the medals. I finished fourth, very, very close to third, but finished fourth overall. As anybody will know, doing an Olympic Games, finishing fourth is, you know, it's the leather or wooden medal, and it's just the worst feeling. It's terrible because you're so close and you're so far. And the other... Uh, interesting thing with the Olympic Games financially and for recognition for the Olympic Games there's only one medal that counts anyway and that's a gold medal a silver or bronze just doesn't get the same sort of financial reward as, as a gold medal so having three medals would have made a big difference as well even if it was a silver medal or a bronze medal it would have been a hell of a lot better than fourth mm-hmm. but having said that I'd, I'd wake up for a couple of months and, and my first conscious thought was was pretty angry and upset about things so I vowed to make sure what happened to me wouldn't happen to somebody else. So I got really involved with the um, class organisation and the manufacturer to make sure that there would be compensation if equipment broke and also made sure that the equipment wouldn't break and also went hard out to try and win a world championships, which is something I'd never done before because I could never afford top-line equipment for world championships. And I, I won the world championships. I won every race except one where I finished second. And so the interesting thing with with failure or when we don't achieve something that we wanted to achieve it's very important to look at it as as an opportunity and I I think it's been really interesting I've I've come across it so many times in my life that I'd be very goal-oriented going towards a particular goal going as hard as I can but at the same time being able to recognize the moment that you have to let that thing go and for whatever reason and recognize that that apparent closing of a door or that failure is actually an opportunity to step up in ways you hadn't imagined that can often be much better than uh, what you would have achieved if you were going towards the goal that you had originally intended. And that's something I keep on having to relearn through my life. So whilst it's kind of a fear of failure that drives me to do things in some ways, it's also remembering, I've also changed that, after the uh, 88 Olympic Games and the, and the 92 Olympic Games, really recognising, and, and even the 84 Olympic Games, recognising whatever we're choosing to do, even though it's tough and there's some suffering and all the rest of it, it's really important to try and find the fun in it. There's always an opportunity to have fun. Enjoy your moment. I mean, um, we're not on the planet for a long time, and our, our team manager, uh, Mike Clark, leading up to the... Um, 88 Olympic Games and the 92 Olympic Games, 
you know, the, the adage, live, work hard, play hard, and, and um, we're here for a good time, you know, not a long time. And that fits in really well with a lot of the philosophies I've been studying recently about, you know, living in the moment and, and making the most of every moment because that's the only thing that we've really got. I mean, the past is gone. So I, I don't look at my medals as as, as me or, or or something that I've achieved that's that's in the past. It's gone. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the best with my very moment. And, of course, I've got plans that I'm working towards now. I'm, I'm coaching the, um, the Japanese Olympic women's windsurfing team, and that's an interesting challenge considering the language barrier. And, and also coaching windsurfing is really hard because the sailors are going pretty fast, and so you've got to be able to chase them pretty fast in a coach boat. And you get pretty beaten up if it's windy and rough. Much more comfortable ride on a board than in a boat. And it's noisy. And so trying to communicate with them is really hard. So I've got a, a collection of hand signals that I use with my sailors. And um, I'm pretty good at whistling. If I'm close enough, they can hear me whistle. And then they look at me and they look at the hand signal. And then, and then if I've got something really detailed... I'll, I'll get them on the coach boat and we'll, we'll sit there and talk one-on-one for a little bit. But also, because of the language barrier, I have to have an interpreter in the boat. And it can be very challenging sometimes to make sure that they they really get and understand what you're saying. And um, I've had a few funny moments where they've completely got it confused. But I, I find coaching very, very interesting with the psychology and, and it's it's fun. But mm. at the same time, I've been, I've been really working hard to try and step away from having to travel around the world and uh, do coaching racing around the world i can't afford to do yacht racing anymore i've got a young family so i can't afford to do full-time sailing and so i've been doing coaching to earn money but it's also difficult with traveling with the young with my young family i've got a a six-year-old and a nine-year-old boy and a girl and um my wife's been very understanding with my traveling it's hard on her and it's hard on the family so I've been really working ways to try and step out of coaching so I've, I've had a go at um, doing a, a high-end adventure tourism company called Ahipara VIP Adventures it's still going well our first customer was Larry Allison's daughter and a whole lot of her friends but I figured out that really it wasn't the right business for me and um, I stepped out of that and I also um, started importing Canon sunglasses and uh, I was the first person to import Canon sunglasses out of America and Peter Burling and Blair Chuka and a, a lot of New Zealand's top sailors are still using Canon sunglasses but I, I had um, challenges with the product then so, and I decided it wasn't the right product for me so I stepped out of that as well. Then I had a very good look at doing um, bed mattress recycling. But I needed, there's one or two things to, to go the right way, and I would have been doing that now, but it just got too hard. Now under a Labour government, it might be easier. <laughs> so I, I didn't do the bed mattress recycling, and I put a lot of effort and money into that, built a website and all the rest of it. So I still follow that box with interest. Uh, and then recently I've um, designed a windsurfing board and a coach boat. So the windsurfing board's been a fun project. I used to design and build lots of boards back in the 80s. At one stage, I was doing a board a month, and I haven't done that since the 90s. Actually, the late 80s, I haven't done it. It's been a really fun experience to be able to fix all the things that have disappointed me or upset me about windsurfing design. And I've produced some um, equipment that's pretty good equipment. It's good for learning, good for racing. So the next thing is to try and get it to market, and it's in production in China. So... um, that's fun, but it's a it's a tough market. And it's something it's a market I vowed I'd never get involved with. But primary market was the Chinese market because I did this board as a request from the uh, Chinese girl 
Pena Chen that won the silver medal at the last Olympic Games and she asked me if I could help her to do the sport for the Chinese market and I said sure and of course I looked at it more of a global perspective and then I've also started designed a uh, or helped design and, and build a, um, a coach boat and that's also in, in production in the same factory as the windsurfing um, board and I should have the uh, the first board in New Zealand in December and I should have the first boat in New Zealand in January so I'm very much looking forward to that and developing those projects and and again quite scary because um, there's a lot of money involved and it's my reputation and as my grandfather always said it's easy to have a good reputation and keep it much easier to do that than end up with a bad reputation and try and get a good one back so um, I'll be working very hard to try and make sure that the right thing happens with the, the ball and the boat. It sounds super exciting though, and it sounds like something that you're you're really really into as well. Does it give you a different buzz than actually sailing and competing used to give you, or is it or is it much the same? Yeah, no, it's it's, it's different for me to do well at the Olympic Games in in Korea. I, I I thought, well, how can I make sure that every cell in my body is driving towards success and achievement and so I thought well what's the strongest emotion or the strongest headspace that can really physically drive me hard and I, I my conclusion was fear of death fear of, of dying so if, if somebody's got a knife against your throat or a gun against your head how hard are you going to try to survive that and so for somebody to pass me at the Olympic Games was for me to die so I tried really really hard and the Olympic Games in 88, if there was any contact between the sailors, that would result in a, um, in a protest and a disqualification. There was no alternative penalty for, for contact. And so it was very much like a racing car, but at the same time, if there was any contact, it was like chess. Uh, and you could get eliminated by one of the other players. And um, I'd already experienced from the Olympic Games in 84 how badly that can go wrong. So in 88, I was super stressed. It was a tough way to live for a couple of weeks. And it was successful, but man, it was really draining. And, and I have to say that after the Olympic Games in 88, I went into quite a depression, I think, because partly because I've been successful and, and partly because I, I thought that the very dangerous question is why? Why was I successful? Why, why about a lot of things? And that's sort of a rabbit hole, really. And I, I, I became pretty disillusioned about being um, part of the human race and all the rest of it. So I had to really go through some pretty um, dark, deep, heavy deep thinking times to you know to recognize why i should stay on the planet and uh, in the end i concluded it's better to be on the planet and recognize that it's broken and be looking for an opportunity to fix it than to go okay well um, me leaving is the solution so i stayed and and so of course i've through my coaching it's given me opportunity to do beach cleanups and and educate the sailors that I'm coaching and um, that sort of thing. So I know in my, my small way I've managed to make a bit of a difference to the planet with the, the, the garbage and, and how people think about um, trash. I think that sailing sports and water sports at the water's edge, all water sports at the water's edge, a really important thing for people to do because it gives you a really strong appreciation for the health of, of the environment because it's the water's edge that always gets worst affected fastest 
and through sailing, of course, if you're in the water, you can smell it, or, or swimming, you can you can smell if the water's unhealthy. You can see if the water's unhealthy because there's you know rubbish in it or dead fish or whatever, and it gives you a much stronger desire to try and do the right thing and fix things. Mm. I felt guilty a lot of the time about my sport, about and coaching, because you know carrying the world burning jet fuel and and all of sailing equipment pretty much is based from oil or glass or carbon and I felt pretty guilty about that but it's also helping people to learn about the environment and also helping to introduce people to their ego and and I I think that in the end uh, I've really figured out with coaching that if I can get people's ego right in the right space that's how I can get the most out of them if they're too confident they'll go bad they'll go badly if they're not confident enough, they'll go badly. So it's really important to try and get that ego in the right space and build that ego in the right way. And and I, I, I believe now that probably one of the biggest problems for the whole planet now is unhealthy egos. It's unhealthy egos that drive people to try and have more and get the, the, the newest and the best and the fastest and all the rest of it, which contributes to um, burning up the resources and wrecking the planet. I agree with that, mate. And I also think, actually, it's unhealthy ego the other way, though, that doesn't allow people to do enough, which leaves them in a bad spot if they don't have yes. enough ego to get yes. going and do things. I mean, how do you, like, where do you think that the optimal spot for ego is? Good question. I, I think, um, I mean, recently you've been studying or listening to Alan Watts. He's a philosopher that's spoken a lot about um, the Zen and Buddhism and Christianity been listening to Eckhart Tolle and listened to his A New World and very very interesting stuff with a lot of commonalities and I think it's a moving target where is your ego supposed to be I mean it's I think ego is sort of a very clumsy word for a concept a little bit like the word love is a really is a clumsy word for that concept as well because there's so many different kinds of love so yeah hard hard question (laughs) I think people could spend uh, weeks talking about that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's all good, mate. And yeah, it was, a, it was a big one. Bruce, I've got a couple more quick questions for you, but I just want to thank you again for the time that you've, you've given us today to, to have a chat through some of your experiences, but also some of your philosophy as well. And thank you for the work that you've already done, but also thank you for the work that you're doing in the future in regards to creating awareness within people about themselves, but also around about the environment that we that we live in, that we operate in. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure a whole lot of other people do as well. well. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, it's not something that pops up every day for me. No, cool, cool. Bruce, I mean, if people are interested in kind of finding out a little bit more about you or about especially about the boards and the boats like what uh, where can they do how can do that how can they uh, kind of follow along oh good question um i've got a um a very rough and ready website for the board and that's www.glide-sport glidesport.com and that's g-l-i-d-e and the coach boat i haven't got anything for that yet you can find me on facebook and I think if you do a Google search on me, you'll come up with me pretty quickly. And another project that I've been really passionate about recently also is uh, restoring Bucklands beaches. The area that I grew up in is, uh, and still is, excellent area for kids and young people and, and even um, high-level athletes to develop 
Olympic windsurfing and sailing skills. And unfortunately, the, the Tamaki River has taken a real, ha- a real hammering with the extra river traffic and uh, mistakes made by Auckland Transport over the years trying to protect the road, and it's washed away the beach and um, been replaced with black rocks and oysters and the local council not really um, paying enough attention to what was going on, and, and we've ended up with a pretty sorry state of Buckland's beaches. And I, so I've, I've, I've done a Facebook page also to try and help restore Buckland's beaches, and, and that's been a, a project that I took on about two years ago, and, and I've, I'm still chipping away at it. And last week I had a meeting with the Auckland Transport and Howard Council and the Auckland Council's uh, erosion team, and that was a really positive meeting, and um, I'm, I'm hoping we'll make progress on that one over the next years. And, and you can find out about that too. You just Google Buckland's Beach Restoration and Upgrade Projects. Cool. And I'll, I'll put some links in the notes for the show about that. Bruce, final question for you, mate. Do you have a challenge to leave me and the listeners with this week? Challenge? I think it's very interesting when something happens to us, instead of reacting immediately... Just put a small pause in there and just think before you react and just think, is my reaction or my, my next action going to be bring a win-win situation for myself and, and those around me or is, is this a reaction that can go bad? And, and I think if the whole planet was just a little bit more conscious about themselves and what's driving them to do things and how they interact with each other and the environment, I think the world would be a lot better place. Mm. I think that's a great challenge to finish on. Bruce Kendall, thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. (laughs) My pleasure. There you have it, team. I hope you enjoyed the chat today. Sorry about the intro. Sorry about the outro. This is my third go at recording this one as well. Dunno, just not on my game today. Um, But thankfully I was when I was talking to Chris. So hopefully you took as much out of that conversation as I did. If you're a business owner, if you're in the process of starting a business or if you're kind of working your way through owning a business and developing it, I definitely encourage you to grab Chris's book. I think it'll be super helpful for you. If you want to support the show, as I said, make sure you share this episode out with people who are looking for mentors at the moment or people that you think will get value out of it. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a rating and review. That'll be super helpful. If you want to grab a PDF document with five of the top strategies that I have stolen off people who I've interviewed over the years to help you get outside of your comfort zone, head over to getoutofmycomfortzone.com and you can download it from there. Before we wrap things up, I just want to thank Jailan Thank you so much for all the editing you do, mate. Thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. And thank you especially to you guys for tuning in, getting through the intro, getting through the outro. I will see you all again on Friday. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with Chris and I today. 